Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast includes discussions about sex and relationships. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Dawn Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, monogamy. What does that even mean? As a sex and relationships researcher, I tend to approach sex and relationships from what is probably a more analytical and matter-of-fact perspective than the average person. When I started to study monogamy, it was no exception. I began my first studies on monogamy in 2007, and I found that when I asked research participants questions about monogamy, I often experienced defensiveness, sometimes kind of subtle and sometimes very upfront, as I'll talk about later in the episode. I was trying to study monogamy from what I saw as a neutral, non-judgmental perspective, but the responses I was getting were filled with emotion. People have some feelings about monogamy. One of the questions I was interested in was how people define monogamy. What about you? Are you monogamous? If yes, what does that mean to you? How do you define it? Does it mean having only one sexual partner for your entire life? Or does it mean one partner at a time? Does it mean that you don't touch anyone but your monogamous partner in a sexual way? Or does it extend to emotional connections as well? Do you ever wonder if monogamy is the right fit for you? Have you ever wondered why you're monogamous? Or if you're someone who struggles with monogamy but wants to be monogamous, have you ever wondered why that's the case? I find that people who identify as non-monogamous have gone through more of a process of exploring how they define monogamy and non-monogamy, as well as the why behind it. But that exploration is much more rare in monogamous people. This is the first episode in a series on monogamy and non-monogamy. In this episode, I'll tell the story of how I started researching monogamy, why it's challenging to define monogamy, and how protective some people are of monogamy as the one true way. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. When I was an undergraduate at Simon Fraser University, two things happened that changed the way I thought about monogamy. The first thing was voles. Yes, the adorable small rodents. As I mentioned in episode 36 on oxytocin, voles come in monogamous and non-monogamous species. The different types of voles are very genetically similar, but some minor differences make some species monogamous, such as prairie voles, and some promiscuous, such as montane voles. Around the same time I was learning about voles, I participated in a series of focus groups about intimate partner violence on campus. And one of our homework assignments was to read the chapter on jealousy in the book, The Ethical Slut. This book is one of the first ones written on consensual non-monogamy. The book's logical approach to talking about jealousy totally made sense to me. I immediately went out and bought the book. For me, learning about people who lived open, non-monogamous lives was kind of mind-blowing. In high school, my dream was to be a stage manager on Broadway and live a life surrounded by many adoring lovers. So looking back, the signs that I might lean non-monogamous were there, 
but I probably wouldn't have thought of it that way. When I was 20, I met a wonderful, very monogamous man, and we entered into a monogamous relationship. I often joked that I found the world's most monogamous man. And when I read The Ethical Slut at the age of 23, it really got my wheels turning thinking about monogamy in humans. If the voles came in non-monogamous and monogamous varieties, maybe humans did too. And that was the start of my journey to studying monogamy. Voles really were my launching place for thinking about monogamy and non-monogamy. As a behavioral neuroscientist, I'm always interested in animal models of human behaviors. Of course, there are drastic differences between humans and rodents, but it seemed like a good place to start. I like the idea of studying monogamy and non-monogamy in non-human animals because animals don't come with the intense cultural baggage that humans do. You can talk about promiscuous voles and the voles aren't going to feel judged or get upset. So what do monogamy and non-monogamy look like in the wild? A common question that gets asked when people are trying to figure out are humans supposed to be monogamous is how many other species are monogamous? Probably the most commonly cited study on this topic was published in 1977. It was a review of mating and pair bonding data about mammals specifically, of which we are one, and reported that based on the data available at the time, approximately 3% of mammalian species were monogamous. In the animal world, monogamy was defined at that time using four possible criteria. The two main criteria were that, number one, a male-female pair hang out together even when it isn't reproductive season, and number two, they clearly prefer to mate with each other. Other criteria included, number three, they live in a group only with others related to them, and or number four, only one pair in any familial group is breeding at any given time. Researchers back then acknowledged that for most species, they actually didn't have enough info to know if the animals they thought were sexually monogamous actually were. They were kind of making their best guess. And it turns out, most are not actually sexually monogamous. With better observations of behavior, plus the advent of genetic testing for paternity of offspring, it became clear that many mammals that were assumed to be sexually monogamous were in fact having sex outside of their pair bond relationship. So now when we talk about monogamous animals in research, it's important to define if they are sexually monogamous, which is rare, or socially monogamous, which is much more common. I think of socially monogamous in terms of what sex and advice columnist and podcaster Dan Savage calls being, quote, monogamish. So to the outside world and in your day-to-day life, a couple appears to be monogamous, but maybe they go to swingers clubs once a month or once a year, or maybe they're allowed a hall pass when they're traveling. God, both of those examples are so pre-COVID. Socially monogamous animals spend most of their time with their primary partner, have the most sex with that partner, but every so often they hop over and have some sex with someone else. Actual sexual monogamy is pretty rare in most species. Even birds, of which 90% of bird species are called monogamous, most are socially, not sexually monogamous. For mammals, new estimates are that 9% are socially monogamous, 
And for primates specifically, the numbers are actually higher, where about one-third are socially monogamous. Reminder, humans are primates. Even prairie voles, who are the main model used to study monogamy, the species itself is socially not sexually monogamous. So prairie voles build nests and have both parents involved in caring for the young. And while individual prairie voles might be sexually monogamous, the species is not. So when we're studying monogamy in most mammals, what we're looking at is pair bonding and mating preference, not so much their sexual behavior as a whole. That means when research on voles tells us that oxytocin and vasopressin receptors are linked with monogamous behavior, it doesn't mean sexual exclusivity. We know the genes behind what makes voles socially monogamous, but we can't be sure what causes sexual monogamy. Of course, if we're talking about humans, most of them use sexual exclusivity as the core feature of the definition of monogamy. So I think we can learn things from animal models that can help understand things like pair bonding, but human social and sexual interactions and our brains are so much more complex than those of a vole. So there's a lot going on beyond just our oxytocin and vasopressin genes and receptors. So what about defining monogamy in humans? You probably have an idea of what monogamy means to you, but have you ever talked about that definition with a partner or with friends? I bet you might find that your definitions vary. I do think over the last five to 10 years, there has been increasing discussion in the media about non-monogamy, so people are more aware of options outside of monogamy. And it's possible this awareness has led to more discussion about monogamy within couples, but I still think it's pretty rare. When it comes to sex and relationships, a lot of us rely on assumptions or what we think is, quote, normal, and don't have enough conversations about these things. So most people have sexual exclusivity at the core of their monogamous relationship. But what even is sexual exclusivity? A study I love to talk about with my students involved asking students at the University of New Brunswick what they considered to be sex, and then also what they considered unfaithful or being unfaithful. And the definitions of what counted as sex varied, with almost 100% of people saying that penile vaginal or penile anal sex counted as sex, and any non-penetrative acts had lower likelihood of being counted as sex. But when we ask what counts as cheating, every single possible sexual act, including kissing, counted as being unfaithful at almost 100%. I don't like the words unfaithful or cheating because they're imbued with judgment. I prefer non-consensual non-monogamy because it's more neutral. But it's also a lot of syllables. Infidelity seems less judgy, so I might use that because it's easier to say. So in your mind, what is encompassed in monogamy? Is it the same definition for you and for your partner or potential partner? Does it mean, say, all sexual touching with another person is off limits? Okay, then what about sexting? What if the sexting is with someone you or your partner would never meet, like exchanging messages with someone on OnlyFans or other porn site? What about watching porn? When you get down to the nitty-gritty, there are so many possible things that may or may not be defined in someone's definition of monogamy. Other things might include flirting, dancing, and emotional connections with other people. For some people, 
all of these things might be a violation of monogamy. For others, the idea of regulating a partner's porn use or flirting behavior is controlling and abusive. My point here is that you won't know until you ask. You can't assume other people's definitions of monogamy are the same as yours, even if you've been in a monogamous relationship together for decades. It's rare to study relationship agreements in monogamous heterosexual couples, but one study that did found that 62% of the mixed-sex participants in an American online survey said they had specific sexual monogamy agreement with their partner. That means there was a big chunk of people just kind of assuming monogamy. And I would actually bet that even some of that 62% hadn't had a detailed conversation about it. Maybe it was just like, hey, are we monogamous? Yes, okay. Also, in studies done with gay male couples, when asked what their relationship agreements were, many couples did not give the same answers. So even when people are talking about these agreements, they may have different memories of the conversation. I think it's probably more complicated in non-monogamous relationships than monogamous, but if monogamy is important to you, it's probably a good idea to clarify what it means. So each person can have their own definition of monogamy, but for my research purposes, I needed a clear definition. To truly understand monogamy, I wanted my definition to include both psychological and behavioral components. In Canada and the U.S., monogamy is the norm enshrined by law and culture. It's difficult to stray from cultural norms, primarily because you're raised to believe these norms are, well, normal. So for many people, going outside the norm isn't even considered. And for those who do violate these norms, there are consequences. Within a culture that emphasizes monogamy, most long-term relationships involve an agreement to be monogamous. These cultural and relationship expectations definitely influence and restrict our behavior, which is also why I wanted to get at the psychological aspects of monogamy. It could be that many people who desire non-monogamy, or at least curious about it, are engaged in monogamous relationships because that is what is expected of them. My first study asked questions about monogamy in terms of behavior, so what have you done, but also the non-behavioral components like desires and preferences. I asked hypothetical questions like, if no one would be upset or harmed by your behavior, would you want to have sex with people other than your current partner? And if you lived in a world where everyone was non-monogamous, would you choose to be monogamous or not? I also asked about current desires and fantasies, like how often do you fantasize about people other than your partner? Based on the voles, I imagined that clusters would emerge of monogamous people and non-monogamous people. But I should have known better because virtually everything that exists in nature is on a spectrum. So things like height, weight, the color green, personality traits, etc. With personality traits, we talk about people, say, as extroverts and introverts because categories and binaries are easier. But what actually exists is a spectrum from highly introverted to highly extroverted. With my monogamy questions, what happened was that some people were highly monogamous, both in behavior and desire, some were highly non-monogamous, but most people fell somewhere in between these two extremes. 
I was still set on the two groups thing, though. So for my next study, which was an fMRI study where I looked at men's brain activation while they viewed neutral, romantic, and sexual stimuli, I used questions from the first study to try to find people in those highly monogamous and highly non-monogamous groups. I did this to be able to maximize the differences in brain activation by making the groups as different as possible. So anyone who fell in the middle that was hard to categorize, I ignored them. As an aside, I only studied men because there was limited funding, and my supervisor and I figured it would be easier to get men to be more honest about non-monogamy given the double standard around sex. To recruit men for the study, my research assistants and I had to interview men over the phone to find ones that fit into each category. To fit into the highly monogamous category, participants had to have never dated more than one person at a time, have fewer than five sexual partners in their lifetime, and answer the hypothetical-slash-psychological monogamy questions in a monogamous way. To be highly non-monogamous, men had to have experienced multiple partners at once, either through consensual or non-consensual non-monogamy, state that they preferred non-monogamy, and answer the psychological questions in a non-monogamous way. And again, with these phone interviews, most of the people I talked to fell somewhere between these extremes, so they didn't qualify for the study. One man even yelled at me when I told him he didn't qualify. When he pushed me as to why, I explained that for our monogamous participants, we had very strict criteria, and he just didn't fit the criteria for this specific study. This led to him yelling at me, saying, You will never find any man that fits your criteria! This is not uncommon when I talk about monogamy. People scoff at the idea that any man would ever be monogamous. But my data say otherwise. After both the survey and the interviews for the fMRI study, it was very clear to me that monogamy was a spectrum, not a binary thing. Around this time, Sex at Dawn was published. This book argues that based on historical evidence, humans did not evolve to be monogamous. While I find the argument in the book compelling, it's likely that pair bonding has existed for a long time, similar to what we see in socially monogamous primate species. The desire for sexual exclusivity, however, is likely a byproduct of the agricultural revolution when men started owning land and caring about things like who they were going to pass down their private property to. The humans as monogamous or non-monogamous debate is far from settled, and I will get more into it in the next episode on the whys of monogamy and non-monogamy. The other thing that happened after Sex at Dawn was released was that in 2011, I saw a YouTube video where Dan Savage says essentially that everyone desperately wants to have sex with other people, regardless of whether or not they're in a monogamous relationship. Here's a clip. Yeah, absolutely. We need to rethink love and commitment. You know, 60 years ago uh, was when we decided that men had to be monogamous too. Men were not monogamous for all of recorded human history. Men had concubines and whores. And 60 years ago, straight relationships began to become more egalitarian and it was less of a property transaction. A marriage had been a property transaction for most of recorded human history. And it became a union of two equals. And at that moment, Instead of deciding to, to allow women to have the same sort of freedom and leeway that men did, we decided to let men have the same limitations, uh, impose the same limitations that women had, and we put monogamous uh, sexual commitment at the heart of all relationships, all long-term commitments, all marriages, and we have watched. Uh, we should now be able to recognize the consequences of that, which are a lot of short-term relationships, a lot of divorce, 
because monogamy is uh, ridiculous and people aren't any good at it. We're not wired for it. We didn't evolve to be. It's not natural. Um, and it pr- places a tremendous strain on our marriages uh, and our long-term commitments to expect them to be effortlessly monogamous. Because what we've said is, if you're in love, you shouldn't, you won't want to have sex with anybody else. And what we need to tell people is that if you're in love, you can make a monogamous commitment and you will refrain from having sex with other people, but you will still desperately want to fuck the shit out of other people. Both Dan Savage and the authors of Sex at Dawn are essentially saying everyone wants to be non-monogamous or is wired to be non-monogamous. As an aside, I hate the word wired. I would say, based on my data, that isn't the case. I began collecting data to directly look at whether or not all people desperately want to fuck other people. I also thought that for people who identify as monogamous or who enter into monogamous relationships, it might be useful to be able to situate themselves on the monogamy spectrum as a way of having conversations with their partner. I created a survey called the Extradiatic Attraction Scale to assess how much attraction or interest in others people had while in a relationship. Lo and behold, I found an almost perfect bell curve in the data. Some people are highly attracted to others, some people are not at all attracted to others, and most of us fall somewhere in the middle. I will include the survey on the episode page on doweknowthings.com for this episode, so you can take the survey yourself. I define monogamy as both the behavioral acts, so having romantic and sexual relationships with one person at a time, and as what our desires and longings are for. I think this definition helps to destigmatize attraction to others while in a relationship and also destigmatize non-monogamy generally because it normalizes non-monogamous desires and fantasies. So while I think it's reasonable to destigmatize non-monogamy and non-monogamous desires, the average monogamous person, however, seems to be pretty protective and defensive of monogamy. Sociologist Eric Anderson interviewed many heterosexual men about their beliefs on monogamy and coined the word monogamism, which is the privileging of monogamy that exists in our culture. In his studies specifically, he's referring to monogamism even among people who have clearly demonstrated that they struggle with monogamy. One of his articles, titled with a quote from a participant in his research, is called, At least with cheating, there's an attempt at monogamy. So that was the quote. In this article, and in his book, The Monogamy Gap, he discusses the struggle of men who cheat on partners, but who also think monogamy is the only option. When Anderson asks them if they would consider consensual non-monogamy as an option, the response is usually along the lines of, no, I just need to try harder, or I just need to find the right woman. They can't see beyond the monogamous norm, even as their behavior is clearly not meeting that norm. I see this in my own research, too. In a large sample of Canadians and Americans, I asked people if they were in a monogamous relationship or not, and then asked how many people they had sex with in the past year. A surprising amount of people reported being in a monogamous relationship for more than a year, but also reported multiple sexual partners in the past year. This can happen when people are engaging in non-consensually monogamous behavior, so infidelity. They see their relationship as monogamous, even if they're not behaving that way. Or it happens with people who have threesomes or moresomes with their, quote, monogamous partner. Often people don't count it as non-monogamous if they have sex with other people together. 
So their definition of monogamy doesn't actually include sexual exclusivity as long as the sex with other people happens together. Yet another spin on defining monogamy. Other interesting results have come from some open-ended survey responses. The question, if you lived in a world where everyone was non-monogamous, would you choose to be monogamous or not? In response to that, I also asked them to explain their answers. I've received generic, suspicious-of-everyone type answers like, well, if everyone else is cheating, I guess I would do it too. Or, I guess I just wouldn't date because you wouldn't be able to trust anyone. My goal with this question is to try to get people to think about what the world would be like if they were raised with a different cultural norm, and then also to allow the freedom to be like, yeah, I actually would choose non-monogamy. And plenty of people do say that. But some of the ones who choose monogamy respond with angry-seeming answers, like, it's disgusting to even consider this. It is wrong and immoral. In fact, many of them allude to morality, such as, I don't think it's healthy for children to see that type of relationship. And of course, plenty of responses about God and the Bible, and the Bible says monogamy is the only way. Right. The most common responses of the monogamous crowd, though, are about being too jealous to be non-monogamous, and ones that fall in the category that I call love equals monogamy. This latter category are variations of responses that essentially mean If you love someone, you will never want anyone else. And so if you want someone else, you don't love the person. Of course, love is not a finite resource, but in our monogamous world, we are told that it is. And we are also told that real love can only be felt for one person or that you won't be attracted to others if you really love your partner. Of course, there are plenty of people who have experienced otherwise. So after all you've heard in this episode, what is your definition of monogamy? Has it changed? Defining monogamy is really up to you and the people you're involved with, and I don't think there's one definitive way to say, this is monogamy. For most humans, this does mean sexual exclusivity, but as I discussed, some people feel they are monogamous even when they are not sexually exclusive. I think discussing our definitions of monogamy, understanding that monogamy is likely a spectrum, and being more open and accepting of variations in monogamy can make for better, more honest relationships. Lots of people are behaviorally monogamous, but might feel guilty or ashamed for their non-monogamous desires. By normalizing these desires and allowing space to talk about them, we can prolong and enhance monogamous relationships. We can also help folks feel safer exploring non-monogamy if that's what they want. My goal in life is to normalize and destigmatize all sorts of sexual and relationship behaviors, and consensual non-monogamy is one of those things I try to destigmatize. I know it gets tangled up with infidelity, and that's one reason why there's so much prejudice against it, but there's also a strong moral superiority thing with monogamy. In monogamous societies, we demonize any kind of non-monogamy. On the next episode in this series, I'll delve into the whys of monogamy, including why we are so obsessed with monogamy. In my research, most of the people I interview believe that their social environment has no influence on their preference for monogamy. But that's just not how cultural norms work. More on that next time. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of the episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. 
You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DeweyKnowThings, and you can email me at DeweyKnowThings at gmail.com. DeweyKnowThings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.